Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we come before you with happy hearts, Lord, because we're in your house to hear from you, from your word, and we know, Lord, that you'll speak to us. And we pray, Lord, um, give us open hearts, give us good soil, Lord, as uh, your son preached about that there's different types of soil and hearts, and there's a good soil, but there's stony type situations, like a stony path, and, and the word can get plucked out of those situations, Lord. And we just pray that you give us good hearts that would receive your word, that it would be implanted deep and grow within us. Um, we pray, Lord, that for those who are among us who don't yet know you, Lord, we pray that you'd open eyes and you give fresh hope and you give them faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you a little bit of historical background of a passage that Chad just read in Acts 6. It takes place in 33 AD. Um, we know that Jesus was crucified on April 3rd, 33 AD. He came back to life three days later. He spent 40 days showing off his resurrected body to the disciples, showing them that I'm fine, you can touch, it's a real body, I'm really raised from the dead. He spends that 40 days with them. And, um, and then... 40 days in, he ascends. And they're just hanging out there. You read it in the beginning of Acts. Uh, the disciples and Jesus are just hanging out there. And it says that while he was talking, he was lifted up from them. So there's no like pyrotechnics. There's no fog. There's nothing like that. He just went up. And uh, it was really fun. About a month ago, I did children's ministry. And we, it was on the ascension. And I've always talked about it being kind of like a balloon. You know, that Jesus, his body just... He, gradually went up and was taken away in the clouds. And so we talked about it with the kids and we brought a balloon. You could ask them about it. They probably remember that part, but they might not remember what it was about. But um, talk to them about that because we just went out there. It was a cloudy day like today and we just let the balloon go and we were just watching it go. And they were really amazed. It was cool how they watched it. And we waited and it was good. It was cloudy because then it wouldn't take forever. And uh, it disappeared into the clouds. And we talked about how Jesus left in that way bodily, took his body with him and is going to return the same way he left. He's coming back bodily one day. Well, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And they only had to wait 10 more days. So uh, it was 50 days after the resurrection. There was Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came and dwelt them in power. And we see the effect of it. In uh, Acts 2, we can see that the Holy Spirit empowering his people to preach the gospel had massive growth. Okay, So in Acts 2.41, Luke reports that there were added that day 3,000 souls. It says in uh, Acts 4.4, 4, uh, Luke reports again, that 5,000 just men came to Christ that day. And women, uh, you'd imagine, did too. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, guys, working through his people as they proclaim the gospel. And at this point, the church is limited to Jerusalem. It's mostly Jewish. There's a few exceptions, but it's mostly all Jews. Some of them spoke Hebrew and, um, and went when they, they spoke Aramaic in their daily life, but when they went to synagogue, they went to synagogue and it was in Hebrew. And some of them, though, are called Hellenists. And those people, their natural language was Greek. So they went to a Greek-speaking synagogue. They had Greek kind of culture. And you can imagine that there's a difference there in cultures. Not racial difference, but ethnic difference. Because they had a different language, they had a different culture, different society. And so you have these two types. So it's limited to Jerusalem. It's these two different types of racially Jewish people, and it's led by the 12 apostles. So pretty cool ministry team. I mean, if your church is going to be led by somebody, like you got the 12 apostles. It's a good deal, right? This is a good time. And, um, and this is before, guys, this is before persecution breaks out and really scatters the church because they probably just stayed there. It's comfortable, right? Your big church, 
you got the apostles running it. Like, there's no reason to, like, go out anywhere. Persecution comes, though, in chapter 6, later in chapter 6, and the church spreads, and they take the gospel of the nations the way they were supposed to. And this massive growth, though, guys, in the church also, though, creates problems. Take a look at verse 1. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, which is great, a complaint arose among the Hellenists, bummer, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is a big bummer, right? You got this growth, everybody's excited, and then there's this problem. The problem was the church distributed food, clothing, probably some money to the widows that were in their church. And what was happening is the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, were like, you guys don't take care of our widows like you take care of the Hebrew-speaking ones, okay? This is a problem, you know? If the church is really playing favorites to people based on their ethnicity, this is a real problem. It was a scandal. It was something that threatened to either divide the church or sidetrack the apostles. This is two ways it could have gone. You could ignore it, kind of let it split up the church, or you could have the apostles take care of it, which would sidetrack them and what they're meant to do. And in verse 2, the apostles say, it is not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're saying we can't do everything, you know. But if they don't find somebody to take care of this, there'll be a split. But if they do decide, you imagine the 12 apostles taking over the food distribution of the widows. As important a work as that is, that isn't what they've been called to do. They've been called to preach the word. And the apostles knew that. And you look in verse 4, they say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So what's the apostles' solution? Take a look at verse 2. The 12 summons the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose for themselves these seven men that I don't want to read their names, and the apostles prayed and laid hands on them, right? The apostles created a whole new team of leaders that specialized in mercy ministry. Isn't that cool? And so the apostles then are free to fully give themselves, to fully devote themselves to the ministry of the word, while this new team gets to fully devote themselves to the ministry of mercy. And so the ministry of the word continues. The ministry of mercy isn't just maintained. It's not like, well, I guess we have to take care of the widows. Let's just do the minimum we have to do. No, it could grow because you had specialists. You had people that specialized in mercy ministry. And you know, guys, there is a debate in the church about what the church should focus on. You know, should the church focus on the ministry of the word or should the church focus on the ministry of mercy? And you have some churches that are all ministry of the word and they have very little ministry of mercy. Then you have other churches that are very focused on ministry of mercy and they neglect the ministry of the word. And you guys, we can kind of see that out in our culture, can't we? Well, Acts 6 says that we don't have to choose between them. Acts 6 says that we shouldn't choose between them. Um, But if we're going to have both a thriving ministry of the word and a thriving ministry of mercy, we're going to have two teams of leaders. Isn't that cool? That's the solution. So the solution isn't just like, oh, some church is going to be all about mercy and some are going to be all about the word. No, every church can be about both if they have two teams of leaders that work together. So one team, the elders, the pastors, the overseers, it's all terms for one group of uh, men, devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. We talked about that last week, and you can look on our podcast, listen on our podcast. Um, and then the second team is the deacons, which devote themselves to the ministry of mercy. And it's pretty cool. Here in chapter 6, you don't see the word deacon used here. You don't see the word deacon here. But what you do see in verse 2, it talks about um, it talks about serving tables, right? The, the Greek word is uh, diakonia, which means to serve. 
And that's the word you can kind of hear deacon in it, right? That's where we got the term deacon from. And so what most commentators believe is that this is the beginning, this is the moment, this is kind of the, the first uh, development of a new group of leaders to deacons. And they were invented for a particular reason, right? They were invented because of this reason. And notice that the apostles, it's really cool, the apostles tell the church, they say, give us names. Isn't that cool? They gathered them all together and they said, pick from among yourselves, seven, you know? Give us some names. And that's why we're doing with these cards, we'd like you to put your name at the top and we'd like you down here to put some names. Put some names of some people in our church that you believe are qualified and I'll talk about the qualifications a little bit and called to do this kind of ministry. So as I'm talking about it and you'd be thinking about the people that are here in this church and th think about who might be those people that should be doing this. We want to hear that from you, just like the passage talks about. Um, and if you yourself feel called to it, um, we want you to write your own name in. That's not weird. You can totally do that. If you're running for president, you vote for yourself. And that's fine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you feel a calling to do it, we want to know that you have that calling. We want to know that as you're hearing this, you're going, wow, I'd really like to do that. You know, I have a burden to do that. I have a desire to do that. I want to do that. Because we want people that want to do it, right? And so put your name so we know it's you. And then go ahead and put, uh, you know, your own name down at the bottom as a recommendation. Um, and we're not going to act on these immediately. We won't have deacons next week. But what we want to do this year, not far down the year, but like soon, in the next few months, is have a team of pastor elders, like we talked about last week, and a team of deacons. And you can see in verse 3 here what the apostles were looking for. Take a look at verse 3. <coughs> it says, therefore, brothers and sisters, pick from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So he gives a very short list of qualifications, right? Full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Decades later, Paul gives a fuller list. If you look in 1 Timothy 3.8, he gives a longer list. And he's given this list to Timothy, who he sent out to go look for deacons. And he gives them a longer list. And here's the list. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, uh, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in, our, in Christ Jesus. <coughs> the requirements here for deacons sound a lot like the requirements for elders in a lot of ways. Um, except that one of the exceptions is that deacons are not required to be able to teach. And the reason is, is because elders, pastors are called the ministry of the word. They need to be able to teach. Deacons are called the ministry of mercy. So they don't have to be able to teach God's word. But deacons should, guys, be passionate, just as passionate about the gospel and just as filled with the spirit as the elders are. In verse uh, 9, he says there um, that they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul uses that term, the mystery, as a way of talking about the gospel. These need to be gospel-loving people, right? They need to love the gospel. And when we go back to Acts 6 and you take a look at the list of people that they chose as deacons, these people were not like B-list people, right? These weren't like people that were less spiritual, less mature, um, less sold out for the Lord. I mean, look at the people that are here. The first two are Stephen and Philip. Those are the ones we know the most about, right? So Stephen, later in Acts 6 and in Acts 7, Stephen was the first martyr, the first person killed for the faith 
after Pentecost. And what's amazing is that he's not only this courageous sold out for Jesus guy and sold out for the spread of the gospel, but he has an amazing command of scripture. I mean, if you read Acts 7, he gives the whole history of Israel and how it points to Christ. Keep in mind, this is while they're gathering rocks to kill him, okay? Like, you, know, you could be like, I could probably do something like that. How about with no prep and you're about to die, you know? And he gives this amazing um, telling of the, of the story of Israel and how it points to Jesus. Philip, Philip's amazing. If you look at chapter 8, um, he's sharing the good news with, um, about Jesus with an Ethiopian eunuch. And granted, he had the biggest softball for evangelism ever. So the uh, Ethiopian eunuch is cruising along, and he's reading out loud Isaiah 53, which is like the best possible Old Testament passage to point to Jesus. And, um, and Philip kind of jogs up next to him, hears this, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And, and he goes, well, who's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about himself, or he's talking about somebody else? It's like, here's Isaiah 53, who's this about? Okay, like, so this is, this is a good one, right? And so he shares the gospel with him, he baptizes him, and then he does this crazy thing where he kind of teleports away. It says that the spirit of the Lord carried him away. So he baptizes him, and then the Ethiopian looks around, and he's gone. Not a requirement for deacons to be able to do that, okay? That's, that's bonus. If you can do that, that's cool. Write that on the card. Um, so even though the deacons, guys, are charged, aren't charged with the ministry of the word, they should still love the word. And they should love the mission of the gospel. The, the deacon, I've thought, you know, I haven't been in the church all my life because I became a Christian later, but I've often thought of the deacons are like, they're the, they have the big set of keys, okay? The big set of keys, like mow the lawn, stuff like that. That's not what this pastor talks about the deacons doing, right? These are specialists in mercy, and these are very spiritual men. Now, the guy with the keys was a very spiritual man, the one I'm thinking of, but it, they're more than that, right? The other difference, so they're not called to teach, but the other difference between elders and pastors and deacons is that elders and pastors are called to only be men. Deacons can be men or women. Now, I know for some of you, this might be surprising. This might be kind of an area of concern. Um, totally want to talk about it with you. I want to show you why I believe that. You say, where are you getting that from? Look at verse 11 in uh, 1 Timothy 3. <coughs> when he says there in verse 11, he says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded faithful in all things. The word that the ESV translates there is wives. If you look down at your little margin notes at the bottom, it can also be translated women, okay? And so it could be either. It could be talking about wives. It could be talking about women. Wives are women, of course. Um, but also the word there that says their wives, which makes it connected to the male deacons, that these are their wives, these are their women, right? Um, that there isn't there, okay? What it really reads in the Greek, it just reads simply and the women. And so there's an interpretive decision to make here. The, and the women, is this the deacon's wives or is this female deacons? Um, uh, uh, there are a lot of um, commentators and pastors, I don't know if you care about names that believe this, but like Tim Keller, John Piper, John MacArthur, would all see this as a female deacon, okay? That these would be female deacons. And so here that it's and the women are and the female deacons or deaconesses. And we do have a very likely example of a female deacon being commended by Paul in Romans 16. So if you go to Romans 16, verse 1, Paul says this, And I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrea, that you also welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of, this, of the saints, and that you help her in whatever she needs from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And so what he's doing in these letters, as they often do, is he's commending her. He's saying, 
hey, Rome, when she comes to town, like, this is a, a servant of the church. And that word servant there is the same word deacon. And it sounds like she's, she's acting in some sort of official capacity because he says, when she shows up, she's with us, give her whatever she needs and the mission she's sent on. You know, it has that official sense. So Phoebe, I believe, was a deacon of that particular church, and he's letting them know, hey, this is, a, this is a deacon, this is somebody that you should help out. And guys, it's great to have female deacons because you can easily manage, imagine some mercy ministry situations that would be better handled by deaconesses than by male deacons. I mean, it's very easy to think of mercy-type situations where that would be more appropriate, that would be better to have a deaconess handle it. And so when you give us names, um, what I'd like you to do is give us not just names of men, but women that you think are qualified for this. And if this idea, guys, of deaconesses is concerning to you, please talk to me. I'm happy to discuss it. I won't get crazy on you. This is not a thing to get crazy about. We'll talk it out, and I have some resources for you, and we can kind of hash it out. And please don't be concerned either, guys, that we are somehow getting shaky on our conviction that the church should be led by qualified male elder pastors, okay? That's not what's going on here. We're not egalitarian in the bad sense of the word. We're not kind of drifting in some way where all of a sudden um, we're going to go that direction. Having female deacons in no way weakens God's design of the church to be taught and led by qualified male leadership because the deacons are not in charge of the preaching and they're not in charge of the overall direction of the church. So you don't have to worry about that, okay? Some of you would worry about that. Some of you, I just said that and you went, ooh, why did he even have that be a problem? So I know I'm dealing with a bunch of different types of people here. So we'll see how it lands. In Acts 6, what do the deacons do? I, I want to give you this real brief sentence on the deacons. What are they charged with? Deacons are called to express our mercy as a church in wisdom to keep us unified on mission. Okay? Deacons are called to express our mercy as a church in wisdom to keep us unified on mission. And I want to go through those three parts with you real quick and just break those down. First, deacons are, are, are called to express our mercy as a church. You guys might be surprised that the first century church would even have a, a, a widow's distribution center, you know? Um, you might even be surprised at that. But the early church guys saw caring for the needy as a core function of the church. Now we kind of think, oh, you know, you could do it or not do it. They saw it as a core function of the church. Acts uh, 2.44 says, And all who believed were in, together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. In Acts 4.34, it says there was not a needy person among them. Isn't that amazing? This is first century, not a needy person among them because they sold their possessions and they took care of them. In Acts um, 2.10, sorry, Galatians 2.10, when Paul meets with James and Peter and John, when Paul meets with them, they talk about the gospel together and they agree, theologically they agree about the gospel and everything. And as they part, Paul says they only ask that we remember the poor, the very thing we're eager to do. Isn't that amazing? These apostles meet up, they, they decide, yeah, we agree on the gospel, we agree on what we're teaching, and then the last thing they say is remember the poor. It was a core conviction for them to take care of the poor. In Acts eleven twenty nine, 29, when there was a famine that struck the church in Jerusalem, it says the disciples determined, everyone according to their ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so Paul makes it his mission. We see this in Acts. We see this in 2 Corinthians. He's going around to all these Gentile churches throughout Macedonia and all these places. And he's collecting funds. He's preaching the gospel. And he's collecting funds from these churches to take back to the church in Jerusalem. 
And guys, this was so important to him that he was willing to get arrested and imprisoned doing it. Because um, in Acts 21, we see as he, as he continued back and he's going back to Jerusalem, he's got this money, and I don't know how they kept that safe and stuff. They brought the money back to this, this starving, famine-ridden uh, Jerusalem church. Um, Paul's being warned repeatedly on his journey by prophets that he's going to get imprisoned. Repeatedly, prophets were like, don't go there, you're going to get tied up, you're going to be bound, you're going to be in prison. And he's like, I know, but I need to do this. It was so important, Paul, to bring relief to, that, to the church in Jerusalem that he was willing to be imprisoned to do it, to make the delivery. And that's exactly what happened. And so it's a core conviction in the church, and we see it throughout church history. In uh, the fourth century, Emperor Julian, who was called Julian the Apostate, so he wasn't a good guy, right? He, uh, he, said, he complained about the church this way. He said, the benevolence of Christians to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their holiness in their lives has done the most to increase their numbers. And then he's complaining about his own people and how they measure up. He says, for it's a disgrace that when no Jew ever has to beg, but the Christians take care of them. The Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see our lack of aid. It's a disgrace to us. So in the fourth century, Emperor Julian's like, this thing's spreading because they care about the poor. You know, this, this, this compassion that they have is spreading the gospel. What, kind, what develops that? What, what creates a deep generosity? What creates that kind of mercy? What creates it, guys, is when the gospel rocks us deeply. When the gospel deeply affects our heart, we'll be generous. But Paul talked about this when he was raising money. So he's going around, he's raising money from the Gentile churches to bring to Jerusalem. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8. He's prepping them. He's going to come by. He's going to do a collection. He says this. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. There's a weird equation there. This is the equation. Affliction plus joy plus poverty equals extreme generosity. That's what was happening in the Macedonian churches. They were afflicted by persecution. They, had, they, weren't, they didn't have a whole lot of resources themselves, but their joy, guys, the joy is the part of the equation that was increasing their generosity. It's joy in the gospel. And then Paul says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means. And listen to this. And of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know, Paul probably was like, ah, I'm not going to collect anything from you guys. You guys look like you need a collection yourselves. And he's cruising along and they're like, no, 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 no. We want to be a part of this. We heard what you're doing. Isn't that amazing? What creates that? Gospel creates that. Um, drop down to verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that cool? When Jesus came and he preached the gospel, he quoted Isaiah about himself. He said this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Guys, the gospel is good news to the poor. How? Gospel is good news to the poor in two ways. First, you can only see the gospel as good news if you see yourself as poor. You realize that? Gospel is not good news to you unless you see yourself as poor. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. You have to see yourself as poor to receive the gospel. You have to be poor in spirit. That's the only way in. You have to be poor in spirit. You cannot be middle class in spirit. You can't. You can't be middle class in spirit. And, you know, what is middle class in spirit? Middle class in spirit is, I can pay my own way, right? Isn't that the way we are? 
I, I have a very hard time having people pay. Some of you know, you went out to eat with me and then I wrestled you down and uh, you know, did some trick or something like that to pay. Like, I have a very hard time having people pay for me. Why? I'm middle class in spirit. I wanna pay my own way. Can't do that with the gospel. You have to be poor in spirit. You can't be middle class in spirit. You can't be like, I'll just try harder. Um, I've got what it takes to earn it myself. I don't need anyone's handout or charity, right? Middle class in spirit. We can't come to God that way, right? The gospel is only good news if we come poor in spirit. If we say, I have nothing to offer. I can't just try harder. I tried that. I don't have what it takes to earn my way. Someone else's handout is my only hope of salvation, right? Give me mercy or I die. That's poor in spirit. And so the, the, it, it, to those kind of people, to those who are poor in spirit, it is really good news that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. All we bring to Jesus, guys, is our sin debt. It's all we got, you know? We don't show up to him and say, hey, I got these gifts I could use for your kingdom, maybe we can make a deal, right? Or hey, you know, I make a good amount of money, maybe you know, we could work something out for those poor people you wanna help. He doesn't want that. All we bring is our debt. All we bring is our sin debt to Jesus, a debt that we can never pay, and a debt that has earned us everlasting judgment. And the cool thing is, guys, is that Jesus saw us on our debt, he saw our poverty, and he had mercy on us, and he left all of his riches to come here. How was Jesus rich? Think about it. How was Jesus rich before he came? He is king of the universe. He is the happiest of all beings. He lacked nothing he wanted. He was completely free to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. That's what it's like to be rich, right? To be rich is to have power. It's to be able to get whatever you want, whenever you want it. It's to be completely free to do whatever you want. He had even the richest relationships. You think about like the son with the father and the spirit from all eternity, a relationship of love between each other. So he's rich in relationships. We watched the Batman Lego movie. I highly suggest it. It's a great movie about community and about isolation. And there's a lot of deep themes there. But you know, Batman comes home, he's totally alone, right? He's got everything, but he doesn't have the relationships, right? Comes home, sitting by himself, eating his food, you know, on his toys. Jesus wasn't like that. He had everything he wanted, and he had the richest of all relationships. He had the Father and the Spirit. Uh, richest of relationships. He, he was able to fully live out all of his purposes and will. That's what it means to be rich, right? Be able to live out all your purposes and all your will and all your potential. Jesus was rich in the ultimate sense of the word rich. And yet Jesus left his riches in heaven. Jesus was born in a manger. He was born to parents that when they made the offering for a newborn son, there were two offerings you could give. You could give, you know, a, a lamb or something like that, something big, or, you know, the poor people were able to give two pigeons. His parents gave two pigeons. That's all they had. They didn't have the money to do a big offering. Um, his work, he was a laborer. You know, it says he was a carpenter. The word there means laborer, like a day laborer. You know, we think of it like he was a carpenter and he made this like museum quality furniture, you know, and he's real famous all over the place, had a great website. He's not that kind of carpenter. He's a laborer. He's framing. He's doing something like that, right? Um, he was rejected and cast off, right? Um, he was poor and that he had nowhere to lay his head. You know, when he came to Jerusalem for the Passover, where did he sleep? He slept in the olive groves. That's where Judas knew to find him. They slept outside on the ground, right? He had nowhere to lay his head. When he arrived in Jerusalem, guys, he arrived on a borrowed donkey. He had Passover in a borrowed room. He died naked, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. That's poor, right? But that's not the poverty this is talking about. You guys realize that? That's not the poverty this is talking about. The poverty that this is talking, the real poverty was that Jesus on the cross 
made himself poor by taking on all of our sin debt. That's real poverty. Real poverty is when you stand before God with a debt that there is no way you can pay. And he took on this debt and he paid it. He paid the debt in our place. He stood there on the cross. He stayed there, nailed to that wood to pay our full debt. And when he died, what did he say? One of the things he said is, it is finished. To telestai, which is a word that they would put on banknotes and stuff. It means paid in full. Your sin debt, your sin debt, if you're trusting in Jesus, though it's great and though you could never pay it, has been fully paid for by Jesus. And for those of you that are here and, and you just aren't sure if your debt's paid, don't leave unsure, okay? Don't leave unsure. There's no reason to leave unsure. I mean, as we take communion and stuff today, you could, you could come forward and you could receive Christ, not just this bread. You could trust in him. You could, you could hand him your sin debt and know that it was paid. And so he paid this debt, guys. He paid it with his body and with his blood. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. What are these riches? Some people might tell you these riches are financial. They're not. They're better. The riches that we receive in Christ is that we have, we will gain access to all that Jesus has and all that Jesus is. Isn't that awesome? We receive his kingdom. We receive the new world that he's going he's to make all things new. He's going to redeem this whole world. You're going to receive access to all that Jesus has. But the best part is you will receive access to all that Jesus is. You receive him. You receive communion with him. You receive joy in him. And so, guys, the gospel is good news to the poor. It's good news to people that know they're poor. And so when we share the gospel, guys, we're not sharing it as people that are superior to other people. I hope you don't feel that way with me this morning, that somehow I'm sharing the gospel to you out of, out of a place of superiority. I'm not. I am just one beggar showing another beggar where I got free bread. You can have it too. Right? We're poor. The gospel is also good news to the poor, guys, because it also causes a massive burst of mercy to the poor in all who receive it. Like when you receive the gospel, it causes a massive burst of mercy towards the physically poor. It's what it does. Anywhere there have been Christians, the poor are blessed by their mercy. You guys think, like, have you guys noticed how many hospitals are saint this and that? Right? Saint Jude, saint this. What is all this? The gospel, as it's gone forth into the world, has resulted in hospitals and feeding people and literacy. And, I mean, the amount of generosity that's been released by followers of Jesus is bigger than any other group ever. There's not even a competition here right? When the gospel rocks our hearts, it opens our hands to the poor. Your heart gets rocked by the gospel, your hand can't stay close. It opens to the poor. Eugene Peterson said this, it's kind of enigmatic the way he said it. He said, the poor are not a problem to be solved, but a people to be joined. You think like, what does that mean? The, the poor are not a problem to be solved, but a people to be joined. And I, I think it can mean two things. We join them and then we know that we're poor. The only way we have eternal life, the only way we have a relationship with Jesus is we've realized our spiritual poverty. But when we do that, guys, we gravitate to the poor. We don't avoid them. We don't avoid their problems. We gravitate to them. And so the deacons, guys, the cool thing, this is how it connects to deacons. The deacons are called to express our mercy as a church, okay? Part two, in wisdom, okay? That's part two of the definition. Wisdom's needed, right? You have this, you rock by the gospel, you want to give to the poor, but it's not always easy to know how to give to the poor, is it? 
You guys all wrestle with this, right? On an off-ramp, right? All kinds of places you wrestle with this. Is this the right place to give, right? Because there's scams, and there's people, guys, who would not be helped by our giving. They would be harmed by our giving. There's a lot of books about that now, how to give to the poor without harming them, you know? Um, there is a way to harm the poor by giving. And what's awesome is that the deacons, guys, are called to express the mercy of the church in wisdom. Deacons are called to, to specialize in how to meet the needs of the poor in a way that stewards the resources of the church, but also helps the poor in a way that really helps them. We need that, don't we? Don't we need a, a group of leaders in our church that would deliberate and think about and, and be wise and know how to help the poor, right? How to help us help the poor. Because we all know, guys, that there are ways to help the poor that don't really help them, right? There are ways that we can do more harm than good. And in the first century, the church was wise about it, right? So when they had uh, widows, they had a registry, right? They had a list of widows that they took care of, and they had certain criteria and things like that. They were careful about these things. The deacons are called to discern what needs can and should be met. And I'll tell you one way I've seen it with deacons, I've, the best I've ever seen, is that on a Sunday morning, you have deacons, and they'll be kind of all over in the church, right? And they'll be armed with gift cards, okay? Be armed with gift cards to grocery stores. And so somebody comes up to an elder, a pastor, and says, hey, you know, we don't have money for groceries, and we need some help. We find a deacon, you know? Not because we don't care. We'll pray for him, but we're like, we want to help him. So we find a deacon. Deacon could real quickly just meet that need, you know? Just meet the need right there. And we don't have to be, like, super suspicious. We'll just meet that need, right? But if there was a need that was bigger, the deacons would... Um, or it was an ongoing need or something like that, they would plan to meet with them and find out what's going on and really do due diligence with it. Um, and, um, if it and, and the deacons don't just give out money, right? They don't just give out money, but they would mobilize the church, mobilize us to provide meals, to provide rides, to find childcare. Um, to, not that they would do all these things, but they would mobilize us to do this, um, to help people find work, to help them with budgeting, to help them with, like, what is causing this ongoing crisis? How can we either get you more income or help you to manage the income you have or, you know, um, get them more connected to the church body? Because one of the worst things about being poor, being needy, is isolation. It isolates. The Proverbs talk about that again and again. You know, the rich man has tons of friends. You know, the poor man, all of his friends disappear, right? Proverbs talk about that. Um, so connecting them more and more to the church body. Um, guys, we've talked about meeting needs outside of our church, especially the senior community, like in Sun City. We've got tons of needs there. The deacons would be excellent for that. That's a group that we need to help us to do that. There'll be times when there's crisis outside of our church community and even outside of our country internationally, just like, you know, when the Jerusalem church had a crisis and the Macedonian church gathered funds and helped them out. Um, the, the deacons would be great at doing that. We've got an opportunity today with... Uh, Girls' House of Refuge in Cambodia. I mean, um, Chad went into it a little bit. He is the brother getting married, by the way, in the video. Um, he didn't make that connection. But, um, but it's, it's, it's an amazing ministry, guys. It's a ministry of the church there. It's a ministry of the church there that is rescuing women out of sex trafficking, gives them a home to live in, gives them stability. Um, these girls have been victimized in a lot of different ways. So that's Rocky, you know. Holly lives with them. And just deals with that, you know, and kind of rides that out and knows, okay, this is going to be rocky for a while, you know. And um, uh, disciples them, shares the gospel with them. It was funny, one time we were talking to her, and she's like, um, I said, well, you know, how often do people come to Christ through this? And she's like, um, it's hard to think of any that didn't. And I was like, really? Like, that's strange, you know. Like, amazing fruit there in that ministry, guys. And, um, and this is a ministry that, like we'll have deacons to do, we don't have them yet, but we have thoroughly vetted this ministry. 
And just so you know, I am a vet, okay? So if anyone's gonna vet something, do you know where that comes from? It comes from like, it actually comes from horse vetting, what I do. So you would, you know, somebody wants to sell a horse and you vet it. You like look through it and check it all out and stuff. We've done extreme vetting on this. Um, we have known Holly forever. I've known Holly for 10 years. Um, Chad's known Holly for how many years? Yeah, how many, how many years have you guys known Holly? Those are their parents, okay? So we know Holly very, very well, right? Um, and it's awesome, guys. The awesome thing here is, I just love this, because the gospel makes us generous, and the deacons help us to do it wisely. So the deacons are called to express the ministry of the church in wisdom, and I got one last part for you, keeping us unified on mission, okay? Keeping us unified on mission. This one's quick. Um, remember why the deacons were invented in the first place, right? Church is growing. There's this complaint. Some of the widows aren't being taken care of, right? This could derail the church. This either causes division or the apostles are going to take over this. And, you know, preaching of the word's going to die down. But they choose the right team, right, um, that can bring unity, right? They, they bring unity to the church. And whoever you write down on that should be a person that's known for peacemaking, right? They should be known as people that peacemake. They, they come into a situation and they don't make it more dramatic, they make it less dramatic, right? Just like these guys did. But you know what's cool? The whole church apparently wanted unity. And you know how I know that? All the names of these deacons are Greek. So these are all Greek names. Remember, who were the widows that, that, that they thought were not being taken care of? They're the Greek-speaking widows. And so what must have happened is the Hebrew-speaking Christians must have gone, you know what? We want to make you feel as comfortable as possible. We'll vote for all Greek-speaking people to do this. Isn't that amazing? They wanted unity. They're like you guys. I love that about you guys. You guys want unity. You're like, hey, you know, I'm willing to be wrong. Let's, let's patch this together. Let's not, let's not fight over this. And so they gave these names. And, and they put them in place. And look what happened, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then there's a little bit of bragging here. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that amazing? Like, those are the guys that really had a lot to lose. You lose your job. You know, you lose your standing. And so the ministry of the word, guys, could grow, not shrink. It says the word of God increased, the numbers increased. But the, this is something you got to grasp, too, is that the, the ministry of mercy could grow, too. Because this isn't just about, like, patching a hole and we can kind of continue with what we really want to do. It's not about that. It's about two teams, guys, working together. We want to grow a ministry of the word, and we want to grow a ministry of mercy. I don't think there'll be a lack of resources, guys, to do this if... We are stirred by the gospel in such a way that we want to open our hands to the poor. And if we have deacons that go, hey, this is a solid kingdom investment, let's get on board. I think there's no lack of resources for that. We could actually grow a ministry of mercy. Isn't that cool? Could be known for that. The church, the early church was known for that. Be a church known for that. But we need the leaders. This is something that you have to have somebody to do. So please, 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 put your name on the top. Put your, some names of some people that you believe be deacons, deaconesses, right, on the bottom here. Um, if you don't know anybody here, you just write a little note of anything, okay? Just kind of write me a note. I'll look at it, okay? We want these people to meet the requirements in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, right? We want these to be people that have an eye for serving those in need. And they really want to devote themselves to having the wisdom to steward things and to really help the poor in a way that really helps them. And we want them to be people that help us stay unified on, on mission. Isn't God good? This is a cool design. I love it. God's good. He stirs us to care for the poor. Then he gives us leaders to help mobilize us for, for mercy. And um, guys, I want to say one last thing to you. This is what it's like when we stop trying to do the Christian life by ourselves, right? Because you can't do this by yourself. 
This is what happens when we stop trying to live the Christian life alone and we commit to a local gathering and we pool our resources and we leverage our gifts for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, physically there was not a poor person among the first century church. But I'll just say, Lord, and you know, that spiritually there are only poor people among us. Lord, we have nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Naked we come to you for dress. Helpless we look to you for grace. Lord, we come vile to your fountain to be washed. Wash us, Savior, or we die. Lord, the gospel is clear. We pray, Lord, that as we worship you, as we come forward for communion, Lord, we would not carry any of our own righteousness around but that we would be completely relying on the righteousness and the riches of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for anyone that's here, that that would be clear, Lord, that you would have some people leave this room trusting in Christ, who came in this room trusting themselves. And we pray, Lord, for Holly and for the team in Cambodia, Lord, we pray that that is a mercy ministry that would grow. Lord, there is no limit to the need there. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to meet it, help us be about it. Lord, I pray that you would call some people here to be ministers of mercy, to be deacons, Lord. I know you have them here. I pray that you would give them a sense that that's their calling. I pray, Lord, too, that you would send some of us, send some of us to places like Cambodia. Lord, Holly is a very ordinary person called by you. And you gave her a burden and she went. She didn't even know why she was going for sure. And you created a whole ministry there. And we pray, Lord, that much more of that would happen, Lord. Help us to really live into that the gospel is the good news for the poor. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.